and welcome to Tigers by the Fire, a podcast out of Holy Cross High School about World War II discussions and stories. This is season four, episode five, and with me are Gavin. Hello. Rocco. Hello. And Zach. Hello. And today the guys are going to be talking about a topic that I feel is pretty interesting and one that people think they know something about, but usually don't know a thing about. And this is about how Hitler almost got, how he almost got nuclear weapons and how, you know, the Allies stopped him from getting nuclear weapons. And so I'm actually going to let these guys really kind of take the lead on this since they did a lot of good, a lot of research on it. And so I'm going to give Gavin the, the start. All right. Thank you. So uh, we we will first want to mention that our main source in researching all of this was this fantastic book uh, called The Winter Fortress, The Epic Mission to Sabotage Hitler's Atomic Bomb. Uh, give it a read. It's fantastic. It's amazing. All right. So when talking about Hitler's nuclear weapons, you have to understand that long before it was but long before Hitler had an interest in making nuclear weapons, there was already research going into, like, of course, there's, like, research going into atomic, like, splitting of atoms long before, like, any atomic bomb was even considered to be made. So we're going to talk about a company that was very involved. It was the main company that Germany used to try and, like, research heavy water, which is going to be the thing that eventually leads to the atomic bomb. So this company was called Norsk Hydro. It was in Norway. It was first founded in 1905. And initially, it focused on creating artificial fertilizer, which was considered a huge market at the time. And in 1906, they created the Vemork power plant just for this purpose, where they dammed up the river Mana in the Telemark region, which was west of Oslo, if you're trying to figure out, figure out where that is. And this company was creating artificial fertilizer through the process of electrolysis. This process uh, splits hydrogen atoms to base hydrogen, like it just splits them in half. And this process creates heavy water in a sense, but this is before heavy water was discovered. So they were creating proto-heavy water in a, in a way. So they created this and they're mostly doing artificial fertilizer. But in 1931, Harold Urey, he had discovered that heavy water was possible to be created through the process of electrolysis. It was it considered um, discovering a certain isotope that was in the hydrogen atom that was not and was not known to be there before. And through this discovery, he was at the forefront at the discovery of heavy water, and he was even given a Nobel Prize. Quickly after this, in the creation of heavy water is a very complicated process and a very laborsome process. A single kilogram of heavy water is equal to 50 tons of ordinary water and 320,000 kilowatts of en- kilowatt hours of energy. That is a lot to create like virtually two pounds of heavy water from that much water and that much energy. Quickly in 1933, after Harold Urey's discovery in 1931, Leif Tronstad who was a popular Norwegian professor at the time, had successfully signed on with Norsk Hydro to produce heavy water on an industrial level. And Vomork was chosen as the power plant to become this industrial site for heavy water. And between 1935 and 1936, Vomork officially got into heavy production, but there was a huge problem. There wasn't a huge demand because even though heavy water had been discovered, other than artificial fertilizer, there wasn't really a purpose for it. No one understood what heavy water could be used. It was a huge discovery and praised at the time, but still no one understood what it could actually be used for. 
So, but as the 1930s continued on and more research occurred of scientists all around Europe, all around America, they began to learn that heavy water could be important in understanding nuclear energy. And this was discovered in the late 1930s, early 1940s, when Germany began to order huge shipments of heavy water from Norsk Hydro. Shipments that, like, Norsk Hydro could not fulfill because it was such a laborious process. Uh, So, but this wouldn't matter because in April to June 1940, Norway was invaded by Nazi Germany. So, Norsk Hydro and Vermork were under Nazi control and they no longer had to request orders because now they just could use the power plant themselves. And they used this power plant and did heavy research. And this is where it it got concerning because allies in the... um, Allies in the French spy service, I forgot what it was called, but these allies discovered that Germany was making huge shipment orders and now they had control of this power plant that created heavy water at absurd levels for the time. And they began to believe that Germany was on the road to creating something of an atomic bomb. So the allies began to create a plan to stop this production in any way, shape, or form, and that leads on to Rocco's part. So, yes, once the Allies discovered Germany's plan at the plant to start developing um, plans for nuclear weapons, they came up with a series of three different operations. I'm going to cover the first two. So the first operation was Operation Grouse, which was um, a plan to set up a base for subsequent operations to destroy the base, to destroy uh, the Vermorsk hydro plant. So the participants in Operation Grouse was a group of Norwegian commandos trained by a group of, or led by a British officer. Um, Their mission was to sabotage the Vermorsk heavy water plant and um, destroy the heavy water chambers. Um, so there are many challenges, with including the weather. The weather had to be just right. It was really cold in the mountainous area where the plant was, and it would be very difficult to set up a base and keep a low profile. Operation Grouse paved way for the future operation, which was um, Operation Freshman, um, and that operation was a disaster for a myriad of reasons. Um, so they were supposed to uh, send two Halifax bombers, which would be towing gliders, which would have, and the gliders would meet up with the um, Norwegian commandos that were part of Operation Grouse. But um, the, in one of the ships, uh, one of the planes, they um, messed up their coordinates and ended up crashing crashing one of the Halifax planes into a mountain along with killing the members of the crew in the plane as well as the glider. And the other plane's navigation system was messed up and they decided to return home, which on their way home, the glider, the second glider, the tow wire snapped and it crashed. And the uh, survivors were captured by the Gestapo after the plane, the glider landed, and they were interrogated and executed. 
And so after oper- the catastrophe of Operation Freshman, um, the plans for um, <coughs> destroying the plant were discovered by the Nazis. And so because of that, the hydro plant had increased security, like uh, they added electrified fences with barbed wire, added more landmines, more guard towers, and a lot of anti-aircraft weapons since the original one was a original attempt was with gliders. So the um, Operation Grouse, that group, would be renamed the Swallow Group, and they had to live off the land and wait for the next operation, which would be Operation Gunnerside, which would be covered by Zach. So yes, Operation Gunnerside was a new group that would be put together by the Special Operations Executive, and there would be six people who would uh, attend this. It would be the team leader, Jakam Runberg, Frederick Kaiser, Hans Storhog, Kasper Idnan, Berger Stromsheim, and Knut Hochlid. Their training would consist of an exact replica of Norse Kaido plant, and SOE had trained them with specifically marksmanship, map reading, as well as camouflage. And they had also went to northern Scotland to be trained in nighttime parachuting, mountain climbing, as well as advanced rope work. It would take a couple of weeks for them to train fully, and it would be three months completely after freshman that this operation would begin. On February 16, 1943, it would be midnight. The commandos would jump out of a plane parachuting. They did not use gliders as freshman was a catastrophe. They were dressed in all British uniforms underneath their winter gear as to not let the Germans put danger on the Norwegian civilian population. The landing would be miles away from the target zone. It would take five days of walking through the snow and the harsh weather until they would meet the Swallow Group. On February 25th, 1943, they all would have moved to a base that was set up by the Gross Group. It would be a couple miles just up north of the plant. The plans for the operation were three. First was decided that they would enter the plant from the north. However, this would contain mountains, forested terrain, as well as a lot of landmines. The second option would be cross a guarded suspension bridge, which would have two uh, two sentries. The bridge is crossing a ravine that is crossing the Mana River. It is just about 500 feet above the fall. If they were to cross that bridge, it would more than likely lead to a firefight, and the mission would no longer be about stealth. The third option would be an eastern railroad that was supplied by uh, intelligence who, from someone who had recently ran away from this uh, facility. And he had informed them, as well as the locals, that this railway was not heavily guarded. And all they would need to do would climb down this ravine that was where the bridge was, and they would cross this river, and then they would climb up nearly 500 feet up, follow the railway, and this was the option that would be chosen as it was the safest and the easiest way to get through. On February 27th, it was time to go. At 8 p.m., both Swallow and Gunnerside would move out towards the Manor River, crossing a frozen part of the climbing climbing up the gorge. They would end up following the railroad and begin just 100 meters away from the gate. At midnight, the guards would change shifts as they got from knowledge from the intelligence. And for this, directly at midnight, they would the commandos would move up with Knut Hocklid. He would be the first one to move with his uh, heavy-duty metal cutters, which, with this story, uh, the heavy the metal cutters were not originally thought to be the plan, as the British had provided them with a handsaw that would have taken a very long time. But Ronberg was going to a movie one day, and... In Cambridge, England, he saw these metal cars and thought that they would be very useful, so he decided to get them, and that would 
make the submission a whole lot easier as well as quickly. They would then split into the two groups as they go into the base. They would have an explosive group as well as a cover squad. The explosive group com- commenced of four commandos. They would take. Uh, they were tasked to place charges as well as place as well as blow the charges. The cover squad would be five commandos. They were tasked to cover the barracks, bridge, and gates. And for them to be able to get access into the basement, the explosive group would first try a side door, which would end up being locked. Runnenberg used a cable duct that was off to the side, and Frederick Kaiser would follow him. A quote from Runnenberg would be, Get inside. I was quite certain that the rest of the party would follow me, but only one chap came. The other ones hadn't found the entrance to the tunnel. Therefore, we decided we would have to do it ourselves and started laying out the charges. The other two commandos had found a window which they would break to gain access. However, no one was still alerted as this the facility was still quiet. The charges were set on the electrolysis cells. The fuses were designated to be two minutes. However, they were cut short to be only 30 seconds long. This would allow for the explosive group to confirm the blast to be far enough away from the explosion. When the explosion had occurred, the blast was very quiet and more like a loud thud than a blast as the walls were concrete and very thick. When the cover group had heard this explosion, they thought it was just a, it's a wind was happening. Um, one guard from that was at the facility had woken up. He would try to go towards the uh, basement. It would take them a while, but when the cover squad saw him turn the corner, both the cover squad as well as the demolition team would turn and go back to where they came. They would leave the facility, and it would take the, the guard all the way until they climbed down the gorge again, and that's when the alerts finally had started. However, the commandos were already fairly far away. The commandos would ski towards Rajukin. After reaching the mountain plateau, they would split. The explosive team would travel more than 200 miles to Sweden using the skis that they had brought while still being fully armed with their weapons as well as their explosives that they had carried. The cover team would spread out around Norway as well as the plateau. No one would be like be killed or captured from the commando squad. The head of the German forces in Norway would come down to the plant. His name would be General Nicholas von Falkenhorst. And what he would do is he would get aggravated at the guards that this would possibly even happen. Mostly he would argue at the Sergeant Major Glasse. Uh, the general had asked Glasse to turn on the floodlights as Glasse was describing all sorts of defenses that were set up, and he had mentioned the floodlights. And what Glasse had done was ask a guard to go turn lights on for us, and the guard came back just about 20 minutes later, and he would... Uh, tell them that he did not know where the light switch was. So General Falkenhorst would send Glasse and a few other guards to the Russian front line, and he would order there to be no reprisal against the local population as the British uniforms were never found as well as the commanders were never found. The end result was nearly 500 kilograms of heavy water would be lost. The plant would be out of service for months. In 1943, the facility was active again. However, bombing was considered one of the choices for this operation and not for Norwegian commanders to go in. This was declined, but just a a year later, the United States would decide to bomb the plant after the reconstruction. On November 16, 1943, 140 American bombers would bomb from work. There would be minimal damage to the plant as presumed from the previous uh, investigation. So... in this story, if we're following right, I mean, we, we have a covert operation where they go in in secret and they sneak into the plant and they detonate some charges and destroy the research before it really is able to go into full gear. Yes. And, and, and this contributes to the Nazis' lack of ability to research an atomic bomb, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, as you guys are researching this, and obviously I remember when we were picking topics, 
you guys kind of had come up with this fairly quick, actually. Um, so w- w- where did you guys hear about this? What was the idea behind it? Who came up with it? So the story is we were, like, very interested in covert operations, mm-hmm. and we just we kind of just looked up covert operations of World War II. And Gunnerside stood out because it's this fascinating story of, like – as you said in the beginning, it's a topic that people think they know about, but not really. Yeah. So we saw that and we just kind of ran with it because it's this idea that if, like, it's it kind of plays with the imagination of if this operation didn't happen, if this, like, research wasn't stalled, would Hitler actually have access to nuclear weapons? Because that would have changed, that would have been a different story in World War II. Correct. I mean, I mean but, but the story itself, I mean, it plays almost like a, a, like a Call of Duty mission. Like, it's, it's, it's kind of crazy, because you don't hear that much of people where they go in and out and everything kind of goes uh, the, the way the plan's supposed to go. But, I mean, obviously they failed a couple of previous attempts. So, um, as you researched it, and, and obviously you just went started with covert ops um what was the most interesting things that you guys found researching this i think the most impressive was that they did this entire operation with just nine guys and they were able to destroy probably years work of research for the nazis not to be able to even use the heavy water to be able to stop the uh the reaction yeah what's also cool um you told me this i don't know if you said it in your part but you said that when they escaped because it was snowing heavily their tracks were like completely covered so like it's the perfect getaway as well and it's just nine guys who stopped this operation or stopped this research that could have that i said it's gonna it could have changed the tide of the war and they were able to get in get out and escape and it seemed like they weren't even there yep and, yeah. and, and as you guys said, the bombings didn't really work too well. Um, and a lot of those places are concrete reinforced. And so the, the bombs don't always hit and they're not hitting the right spot. But obviously this was up close and personal. And then I, I, I do like the, the idea of them skiing away and their tracks are covered. And, and people forget, especially in Scandinavia, uh, in, in the, the Winter War with Russia, and then again in Norway with the Nazis, I mean, the resistance groups and the commando units and other army units, they're using skis to get around because that's because of the snow. And so, yeah, the weather played a, a role, again, in, in some uh, thwarting of Nazi plans. Um, what do you think people should take away from this story? That's a good question. Uh, I would say training matters and learning because these were nine original dudes from Norway who just came around, they escaped, they went to Britain and they were able to be trained to do all this just by themselves. Yeah, and Britain does a lot of this um, where they bring in nationals from Poland, from Czechoslovakia, Norway, and, and they do, they have a couple of little operations. Uh, one of the things that we'll be talking about when we get back from the break is the assassination of Reinhard Heydrich and how you know that was a British you know, covert op where they, they drop in some Czech nationals who end up taking out the, you know, second highest guy in the SS. So, um, this stuff does happen and it's, it's pretty neat. And, and this one, this one was one I didn't know about. Um, and it it definitely feels like there should have been a movie made about it. Uh, I mean, at least a Norwegian movie, but I mean, it's a pretty cool story. So, um, what are you guys, I guess, do you have any final takeaways from it? Um, anything you'd like to part on? I'll let, we'll go around in a circle. I'll let Gavin start. Uh, It's a takeaway. It's more, I think it was funny. (laughs) So Zach told us part of the story where 
the general and the sergeant, like, they met up at the plant after the operation happened, and the general was obviously mad, and they asked the sol- the guard to go check on, like, hey, could you turn the lights on? And he's like, I don't know where the lights are. <laughs> That's pretty much what he says. And I think it's funny that he was immediately like, okay, you're going to Russia now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, that, that, that's a pretty good one. Rocco, what about you? Uh, well, I feel like one reason why this isn't talked about that much is because it just went perfectly. A lot of stories that we hear about in World War II, um, like, for example, when you're talking about the uh, assassinated Reinhard Heydrich, like, there were some stuff that went wrong in the operation in just the part that ended up succeeding. Yeah. With this um, operation, it just went perfectly the entire time, more or less. They went down there, they exploded the bombs, and no one heard it, and then they just left. And no one knew for like an hour after that, the entire thing happened. And then, as you guys said, uh, it seemed like there wasn't a huge reprisal on local citizens, which is very rare. Uh, the Nazis were renowned for doing that. When, when Heydrich got killed, I mean, you're talking like 5,000 people die. Um, uh, th- there's countless stories of uh, groups of people getting killed for, for events like this or sabotage, and in this one it didn't really happen. So then that's also um, adds to it. There's not that huge tragic uh, ending part either. Uh, Zach, what about you? So I had mentioned about how they had gotten the bolt cutters, but they were originally not meant to use the bolt cutters, but uh, they still used it. And because of that, they were able to to do it in minutes with the guards without even knowing, which the guards were not not far away from them at all. But luckily, they were changing shifts, so they were doing it very quickly. With the hacksaw, it would have just taken absolutely forever and probably could have changed the whole outcome. Yeah, just a simple hardware tool uh, that, that, that makes the difference. And, and you said he just saw it one day and was like, we could use that. Yeah, on his day off, he was going to movies and just got it. <laughs> that, that, see, that, that's, that's always some, some fun stuff. Well, uh, guys, very good job with the research. Very good story. This is uh, exactly kind of the, the purpose of this. So uh, thank you. And this was Tigers by the Fire. Uh, thank you for listening.